Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And it's been a while since we've been able to do one of these. Uh, I apologize for the delay, but the thing about covering a Western Conference Finals team is it gets pretty busy on top of a regular news desk editing job. So we've been slacking on the pod a little bit, but we are finally getting back to it because we just got to witness an incredible game one between the Suns and the Clippers in the Conference Finals. First time the Suns had been in the Conference Finals or in the playoffs altogether since 2010 as many people know, but this was an incredible way to return to the conference finals uh, against another LA team, the other one this time, but Devin Booker was insane in this game. So we're going to talk all about his game one performance. We are going to talk about a quick Chris Paul update. Um, We're going to talk about potential adjustments for game two, because as much as it's great to win a basketball game, there are a couple of things that the Suns can improve on moving forward in this series and uh, then we'll hit you with a new g-rated segment our first one in a while Um, but we'll be talking about disney pixar's luca which just came out uh, last week i think came out on thursday or friday uh, and it's free on disney plus but fantastic movie so we'll be talking about that as well but let's get started with the man of the hour mr devin booker who I mean, we've we've been singing his praises all postseason long, just the way that he's risen to the occasion, that he's met this moment that he's been waiting for, all of these playoff moments that he's been working so hard for and dreaming about and hoping that the Suns would put him in position to reach. And now he's finally here, and he is even exceeding my expectations, the wildest expectations that people could have had for him because he has just risen to the occasion time and time again. Uh, 11 games into this playoff journey and in game one against the Clippers he was the best player on the floor when it looked like Paul George was going to torch the Suns again and and technically Paul George did that still Um, but Devin Booker was the best player on the floor he had 40 points 13 rebounds and 11 assists game highs in each category shot 15 for 29 from the floor made all seven of his free throws and went three for seven from long range um And again, 11 assists to only two turnovers. You know, turnovers have been a problem for Booker, but he only had two in game one compared to 11 assists. And the Suns had 31 assists to only seven turnovers as a team. So Booker was a huge part of that. And to do that in a game without Chris Paul, to record his first career triple-double and a 40-point triple-double at that in his first ever conference finals game, in a game without Chris Paul, I mean, that is, that's being legendary. That's exactly what Kobe Bryant was talking about. And yes, it's only game one. There's still a lot of games to go in this series. Um, but that's an incredible start. And, and especially after, you know, having some time off, of course, that's going to give you some rest, but it also opens up the possibility that you're a little bit rusty and Devin Booker, he didn't get off to the fastest of starts. I think he only had like 11 points at halftime, but he was dominant in that second half. And he's been doing this in, in earlier playoff series as well, starting off a little bit slower, 
but using that time to analyze what defenses are doing, how he can pick these teams apart. And then he's just been doing that. Um, and it's been very Chris Paul-esque in that way, as far as, you know, analyzing, reading the defense, what they're doing, and then reacting to it and torching them with it at that. Um, so in this game, we should probably go over a couple of things because Booker made history in multiple ways. Um, he's the second player in franchise history with a 40-point playoff triple-double joining Charles Barkley. He's the fifth player in the last 60 years to record his first ever triple-double in the conference finals or later. Uh, and he joined James Worthy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jerry Lucas, and Bill Russell in that regard. He's the eighth player to record a triple-double in the Western Conference Finals, period. So that's joining Magic Johnson, Charles Barkley, Tim Duncan, Russell Westbrook, Draymond Green, Steph Curry, and LeBron James, all, you know, Hall of Fame caliber talents. Uh, third player with a 40-point triple-double before the age of 25, joining Oscar Robertson and Luka Doncic. Uh, fifth Suns player to record a playoff triple-double at all, Steve Nash, Jason Kidd, Penny Hardaway, and Charles Barkley. Sixth player in NBA history with multiple 40-point games in his first postseason, and that's joining Luka, LeBron, Bob McAdoo, Rick Barry, and Wilt Chamberlain. So those are all, I mean, that, that's a lot of different parameters to throw at you, but those are all Hall of Fame caliber names that you're hearing there. And this was a legendary performance from Devin Booker, and we've seen a couple of them from him in this postseason run. Um, I know the Denver Nuggets series was was mostly taken over by Chris Paul because he looked like himself again and, and repeatedly picked the Nuggets apart in those second halves. But, you know, we can't forget that Booker has been phenomenal. He was phenomenal in the Nuggets series, and he was tremendous for most of the Lakers series. There were those two games, games two and game three, where the Lakers defense really gave him some trouble. But Aside from that, he was terrific, and you know we'll never forget the 47-point closeout effort when he hit eight threes in a game and, and broke his previous record of six that we'd been waiting on forever. Um, and that was incredible for a closeout game to drop the defending champs out of the playoffs. But this was really impressive because this is an even bigger stage, and this is against a good Clippers team that can switch a lot. And he still pick them apart anyway, no matter who they were throwing at him, no matter who they were switching on to him, Devin Booker was phenomenal in this game. Um, and he took over in the third quarter when the Suns kind of needed it most because, you know, it, like in that Nugget series, like I mentioned, it was Chris Paul that was kind of picking teams apart at the end of the third quarter and especially at the beginning of the fourth quarter, but they didn't have him for game one. They didn't have that luxury. And so it was really kind of a question of who was going to step up because those were big game you know, they were momentum swinging stretches for the Suns in, in the playoffs so far with Chris Paul doing that when Booker gets his rest. But Book rose to the occasion again, as he's done. Um, and he, you know, the Clippers were going on a run. Paul George was, you know, he was going off. I think he hit like two threes. He scored like eight points straight for the Clippers at one point in that third quarter. They built like a six point lead or something after they've been trailing by three at half um, and by even more in the third quarter. So it was a big game swinging run right there. And then Devin Booker just responded. You know, he had 18 of his points in the third quarter. Um, and I think he scored 16 straight for the Suns at one point. 
Uh, and he turned that six point deficit into a tie game heading into the fourth quarter where, you know, he added another 11 points for good measure to get him to 40. Um, and the cool thing was that Monty kind of praised Booker for not playing outside of the sun system. You know, he said something like he didn't inject himself into the game, um, but was doing it within what the Suns like to do, you know, it was coming within the offense, what he was doing and he was just surgical and picking them apart. Um, honestly, I might disagree with Monty's terminology because I feel like he did inject himself fully into the game. Like he put his stamp on the game because he scored or assisted on, I think 43 of the sun's final 50 points in game one, which is just absurd. Like that is dominance from, you know, that's, that's the type of dominance you would expect to hear from like a LeBron James or a Kawhi Leonard or, you know, one of these established superstars that we keep praising as like, these guys can lead you to a title. Devin Booker is looking like a guy that can lead you to a title. And especially surveying the landscape right now, there aren't a lot of teams that scare me. You know, if, if you're, if you're looking at who could knock off the Suns, obviously the Clippers, this series is far from over. Suns still have a lot of work to do. But you look to the East, the Suns match up well with the Bucks, and they played them really well in the regular season. And the Hawks have been really good since Nate McMillan took over, but the Suns would be favored in that series. They just would be. Um, and, you know, that's kind of Atlanta's thing is upsetting teams when they're not favored to win. Everybody keeps thinking they'll come back to down to earth and they're actually a really legit team. But the Suns are in a position to win a title and it's because Devin Booker is playing the way that he's playing. He is not shying away from the moment. If anything, he is superseding it. He's surpassing our expectations for what he would do in this moment in his first playoff series. And it's been incredible to watch, um, you know, and it was only fitting that he kind of closed the game out with that dunk on the broken um, defensive set from the Clippers. They had the Suns really ran a nice inbounds play um, targeting switches and, and, Booker got that nice back door with no one to help. Um, and then he got that monster rebound to close it out and then the free throws to finish it off. Um, and he's got the right mentality about it. You know, he said after the game, he said this before in the playoffs, but every next game is our biggest game. So as much as he's enjoying this playoff run, as much as he's aware of some of the history that he's making in the process with some of these performances, he's not satisfied and he's not going to be satisfied until the Suns win seven more times. So it's really impressive to see that a team has that kind of focus. Jay Crowder said after the game, you know, he was asked if they celebrated Devin Booker's triple first triple double in any way, you know, like pouring water on him in the locker room or whatever. And Jay Crowder said, no, there was no pouring water on any or anything like that. It, it's game one. And he mentioned that Chris Paul on the FaceTime uh, that happened like immediately right after the game with with Chris Paul and his teammates in the locker room and on the way to the locker room. Um, Chris Paul was excited, but he he held up the number one. He, you know, went full Doctor Strange. Like it's only one game. We need to stay focused. And that's kind of the mindset of this team. And it's why they've been so successful and how they've been able to overcome that, you know, lack of playoff experience that everyone was talking about, myself included, heading into these these uh, these playoffs. So Really impressive stuff from Devin Booker, but we do need to talk about his backcourt mate, Chris Paul. Um, we won't have an official update until Monday, probably around midday. So maybe you'll be hearing this before the update. Uh, maybe you'll be hearing it afterwards. 
but on Sunday night, Chris Haynes from Yahoo Sports reported that there's optimism that Chris Paul will be back for game two or game three um, because he's been asymptomatic. Now, I was under the impression that he was already asymptomatic, um, especially, you know, he had been vaccinated. So he's kind of like a breakthrough case as far as testing positive for COVID despite being vaccinated. Um, but we'll see what happens. He, the Suns have been talking about him. They've been saying it's a day-to-day thing. Um, he has to register two negative tests before he can come back. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that you can't really control and it sucks for Chris Paul, you know, injuries, you could say the exact same thing. You can't really control it, but this is like another thing that's really just, I mean, you can control it obviously by, you know, wearing masks and being safe and whatnot, but the Suns and the rest of the NBA have been trying to take those precautions. I don't know about fan interaction. That might be, you know, that might be a little irresponsible since we are still in a pandemic, but you know, it's one of those things that there's no way to trace where he got it from. None of the other players on the Suns tested positive for COVID. So it's just one of those things that you have to hope that his luck takes a turn for the better for once in his playoff career. Um, If he is back for game two, that's huge for the Suns, obviously. Um, But game one showed that they can get by without him, especially since Kawhi Leonard is out for at least game two. He didn't even make the trip with the Clippers to LA to continue rehabbing that knee injury. Um, We thought it was an ACL tear, but apparently that's not 100% accurate. And there's hope that he could return in this series. But I honestly don't know how, you know, a report like an ACL tear emerges and he returns in a playoff series. Like, I don't know what. I don't know how that happens. I'm not a doctor, so I can't really say. I don't know what exactly is going on with Kawhi's knee. But if he did return, I don't think it would be until late in the series. And by that point, if Chris Paul is back for game two, I don't know if the Clippers have what it takes to make this a long enough series for Kawhi to return. Um, You know, they're a very good team. They're a tough matchup for the Suns. Their small ball is a difficult uh, proposition for this team on both ends of the floor. But the Suns handled it pretty well. You got you can't say enough about the job that DeAndre Ayton did on the perimeter. And, um, you know, the, the Suns have what it takes to win. Game one showed us that. Um, if he is back, campaign kind of slots back into a more comfortable role. He was a little uncomfortable early in the game. He was chucking a little bit from three-point range on a couple of possessions there. But um, he settled into the game, and I, I think – with Chris Paul back in that starting role, he would be phenomenal in that backup role as he's been for most of the postseason. Um, you know, Suns can get by without Chris Paul, especially with Kawhi Leonard still sidelined, but, you know, having him back would obviously stabilize the rotation in a big way. It would allow book to get a little bit more rest. So he's not playing, you know, 44 minutes in a game. Um, and Monty said he was comfortable playing him that much a, because they had had like a whole week off, after they swept the nuggets and uh, B book was rolling and you just don't take a guy out when he's rolling like that. So having Chris Paul back would help cut down on books workload a little bit. It'd, it'd give them a guy who's also capable of taking over late in the third, early in the fourth, like, like Devin Booker did in game one. And honestly, it prevents each one more minutes, which were, which were pretty bad. Um, and that brings us to our final Suns topic for the day, which is potential adjustments for game three. And we're going to call this one less is more because, you know, each one more was not good in game one. He had two assists. Uh, I think he was 0 for 1 from the field. 
Um, he only played 11 minutes, but he was minus six in those 11 minutes. And I think at one point he was like a minus 10 in just nine minutes on the court. So more was, he was okay. Offensively. He had that one turnover that was pretty bad, like early in the game when he tripped and just threw it right to the Clippers. Um, but he was picked on defensively, which was the bigger issue. You know, the Clippers could smell that blood in the water as far as each one more not being a good defensive matchup. Um, they targeted him. They got him switched on to Paul George a couple of times and it didn't go well for the Suns when that happened. Um, you know, Javon Carter can be a ball stopper on offense. And I get why Monty went with more in game one, because you need some of that playmaking. You need a guy who can dribble and kick, um, you know, drive and kick. They love that that paint to great offense. Um, but, you know, more is just, he's a liability defensively and Javon Carter, as much as he can be a ball stopper, um, he really competes defensively and he makes plays and he can hit threes at a higher percent clip. So I think in game two, if Chris Paul's not back for game two, I think you've got to, if you go with more again off the bench in that backup guard spot, you've got to, have a much shorter leash for him. If he continues to struggle, maybe make the switch to Javon Carter again, because those little, those little swings there, those little stretches can really swing an entire playoff game. And we saw it with DeMarcus Cousins, you know, Boogie was dominant in the first half. He was killing Dario Saric in their minutes together on the floor. But then in the second half, the Suns, you know, Ty Lue flew too close to the sun with that one. He, he kept Boogie in for too long and the Suns brought back in Aiton, and Aiton just pulverized him. Like, it was not even close. Um, and that stretch might have swung the game because Boogie, is as good as he was in the first half, he ended up being a minus 11 for the game. Um, and that was huge for the Suns. So those little stretches can really make a difference. Even if Etuan Moore only plays 11 minutes, those could be the 11 minutes that decide the game. So you have to be careful with this kind of thing. I know Monty believes in all of his players, and, and he empowers them, but – you know, this is the playoff. So if more struggles again, he's got to consider going to Javon Carter um, and maybe even consider going to Javon Carter just to start game two, because, you know, that's not really Monty's style. And that's why I'm hesitant to say I would do it, but that's not really Monty's style. And that's why Monty should have been the coach of the year. He wasn't, but he should have been um, because he does believe in his players and he does empower them. And that's why we see some of the results that we see with this son's team. Um Another adjustment, and this is a tough one because the Suns played really well on offense in game one. Like they played a fantastic game, um, but they need to try to attempt more three-pointers. Um, you know, you look at the Clippers, they attempted 47 threes um, and they made 20 of them, which is almost 43% of their threes. They're, you know, the most efficient three-point shooting team in the league. So this shouldn't be surprising. Um, and the Suns shot great from three. They shot 40.6% from three, um, but they only attempted 32 of them. So that's 15 fewer three-point attempts than the Clippers got off, and they made 13 of them, so that's seven fewer makes. So that's 21 points that they're being outscored by three-point range. And, you know, what saved them in this game, their, their kind of redeeming grace here was that they shot 36 for 57 on two pointers, which is 63%, which is absurd. And it's why they shot like 55% overall from the field. Um, you know, they outscored the Clippers 54 to 34 in points in the paint. They outscored them 16 to four in transition. Um, 
but at some point, you know, if you're not scoring in transition, if the Clippers are able to limit fast break points, if they're able to cut down on points in the paint, you know, the, the Suns were outshot 17 to nine from the free throw line. They're outscored by 21 from three point range. At, at some point, the math isn't in their favor if they're not scoring in transition like that, if they're not, you know, bullying their way to the basket. Um, and especially if they commit more turnovers because they only committed seven in this game. And that type of thing, you know, you chalk it up to 10, 11, 12 turnovers. Suddenly it's a whole different dynamic, um, especially if you're not, you know, Booker was incredible from the mid-range. He was just getting whatever shot he wanted from there. Um, so those are all things to keep in mind. The Suns might want to hoist a few more threes if they can, um, just to balance out some of that math there, because, you know, that they're not going to shoot as well as the Clippers, as efficiently as the Clippers from three-point range in this series. So they need to try and make up some of that math, even though in game one, the math was definitely on their side as far as a lot of looks, good looks within the three-point line. Um, and then the last thing is is maybe a shorter leash for Dario Saric. I know it's tough because you need to get DeAndre Ayton a breather and getting him as long a breather as Monty did in the first half might have worked out for the Suns in the second half when Ayton was was dominant and came back in and they left Boogie in and the whole game changed a little bit. But um, Saric was not good in the first half for sure. Um, second half, he was a little bit better, but you know, he, he's just kind of hit or miss right now. He's really not the confident player that we saw early in the season. Um, so they might need a little bit shorter of a leash with him. You don't want to yank him after he makes a single mistake because and I cannot emphasize this enough. Frank Kaminsky is not the answer. This matchup would destroy Frank Kaminsky and same thing with Jalen Smith. I know people want to see sticks, but like, this is not the time or the place for sticks. Like, call me in two years. <laughs> this is not the time. Um, so they need Dario Sharch in there. It's a physicality problem against Boogie for sure. It's not a great matchup, but they need to have a little bit shorter of a leash with him because Monty left him in for like five or six minutes straight in the first half, maybe seven. I can't remember, but uh, it was a little too long. And, you know, that, that kind of swung momentum in the Clippers favor there in that second quarter. So those would be my adjustments for game two. Obviously the whole dynamic changes if Chris Paul is back. But those are a couple of things from game one that, that really stood out. Um, but that's going to do it for Suns Talk for today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So for our G-rated segment today, we are going to be talking about Luca, which is the new Disney Pixar film. Uh, it's free on Disney Plus, so you don't have to pay like the $30. I know Disney Plus puts a lot of new movies on there now and charges like 30 bucks for them. But it's free. So you can watch it from the comfort of your home for free. And it's really good. Maybe I'm biased because I'm an Italian, but I loved this movie. I really did enjoy it. It's gotten kind of, it's gotten good reviews, but not great reviews from critics. And I think I understand why, but like, I really loved this movie. I thought it was cute. It was charming. It appealed directly to my Italian sensibilities. Um, I loved it. So the premise is the main character is Luca and he is a sea monster. And, um, you know, his family is very overprotective of him. He kind of lives a boring life below the sea, very much a little mermaid kind of set up there, dreaming of, of what life is like above the surface, but being scared to do it. Um, and these sea monsters, they change when they're dry. So when they go on land and they dry off, they kind of shift into humans so they can blend in. 
Um, but his family doesn't want him above the surface at all. But he happens to find all this human crap at the bottom of the ocean, as one tends to do. Again, very Little Mermaid-esque. And he meets this other sea monster, Alberto, who um, kind of yanks him above the surface for the first time and gets him out of his comfort zone. And the more that Luca and Alberto become friends, the more empowered Luca is, the more independent he is. Um, you know, they have a they have a saying, Silencio Bruno, which is basically saying, you know, put your your own doubts and fears aside when you have that voice in the back of your head that tells you um, don't do it or be careful or hold back. Silencio Bruno means like shut that person up and just do it. And it's cute. It's it's a very uh, coming of age story about finding your independence and being adventurous and that kind of adventurous spirit of youth. But um, so they, they hang out and, you know, they, um, they allude to Alberto's dad who is never there. Um, But Alberto is very independent. He finds a lot of stuff at the bottom of the sea and kind of collects them. And he's obsessed with trying to build a Vespa so that he can go anywhere in the world and, and be free and Luca is totally on board with this idea. And, um, you know, eventually his parents find out that he's been going above the surface and changing. And he kind of runs away with Alberto to this town uh, called Porto Rosso, which is, um, you know, right across the bay from where they live, I guess, or whatever. But um, yeah, so they run away to this town and they meet this girl. Uh, named Julia, who is about their age, and she's she's great. Julia might be my favorite character, either her or her dad in this story, um, or the weird uncle, the deep sea fish. He was pretty funny too. But um, they meet this girl, Julia, and she's convincing them, or she, you know, they befriend each other, and she takes part in the Porto Rosso Cup, which is a an Italian triathlon, and it's fucking hilarious that they, <laughs> they did this to us but an italian triathlon is uh swimming biking and eating pasta so she always competes by herself and she always loses because it's supposed to be a team thing um and there's this you know town bully uh ercole i think his name is um but it's it's just a very cute setup and they befriend each other and they decide to each take one leg of the triathlon and obviously because they're sea monsters and don't want to be exposed you know, the, a running gag in the movie is that anytime they get wet, they turn back into sea monsters. So they, they're in this town that's famous for hunting sea monsters. And her dad is like this big fisherman. Um, you know, he's constantly chopping up fish and like there's, you know, harpoons on all of the walls. And it's just, you know, this lovely room of death basically for these sea monsters. But so they're trying to hide it this whole time. Um, so obviously for the swimming portion, neither one of them could really do that because they'll transform. So Julia is going to take the swimming portion. Luca is going to take the biking and Alberto is going to do the pasta eating. And it's just a very cute movie of how they grow together. And a wedge kind of gets driven in between Luca and Alberto because Luca starts becoming really good friends with Julia. And she starts telling him about the school that she goes to and all the things that he could learn if he went to school and so Luca wants to go to school, but Alberto just wants it to be him and Luca on the road in their Vespa, um, you know, going somewhere new every day. Um, and that's because, as we find out, he has abandonment issues because his dad 
who was never around and he was saying, oh, he's the best. He lets me do whatever I want. Well, really, he just never came back. Um, it's very sad. But um, and it's even more so because Luca kind of betrays Alberto when Alberto, to prove a point to Luca, reveals himself as a sea monster to try and out Luca and, and show him that Julia won't like him still if he's a sea monster. But then Luca doesn't get in the water and kind of betrays him and like points out like, ah, oh, sea monster, like, you know, and then, um, you know, they eventually, they, they're kind of brought back together by this threat of the town bully who is also obsessed with killing sea monsters. Apparently everyone in this town is obsessed with killing sea monsters, but um, they come together, they win the triathlon, the town, it's revealed to everybody that, you know, they, they are sea monsters and the town accepts them because they grew to like these characters, these two boys um, when they thought they were just regular kids. Um, and then the story ends with, you know, Luca going off to school with Julia um, while Alberto stays behind with Julia's father. And it's, it's, it's very sad. It's a tearjerker moment for sure, but it's a really charming movie. Um, I thought the characters were really vibrant Obviously, as an Italian, I was drawn in by all the little Italian mannerisms and, and the attention to detail in this town that feels very much like a town that you would find on, on the coast of Italy. Um, you know, the, the, little, the girl Julia, her exclamations of, of Santa Mazzarella and all this <laughs> stupid Italian stuff, it made me very happy. Um, my biggest criticism is probably that it's, it's just not Pixar's best work. Or, or most inventive work. The premise is kind of straightforward. Um, and the one thing that was confusing to me was why the parents were so protective of Luca, you know, because he can, <coughs> he can transform and blend in. So I, I get that water would expose him, but there was no like tie in with why the parents were so overprotective. They were, it was just kind of a general character ar archetype. Cause like in Finding Nemo, Marlon was so protective of Nemo because of the horrible trauma that happened in the first like two minutes of the movie where all of his babies get eaten. Um, so that makes sense, made sense why that was his driving motivation or like in Up, you know, the old guy loses his wife, the first two, three minute montage of that movie, that heartbreaking <laughs> sequence. Um, it tells you why he is the way he is. We don't really get that with Luca's parents and they're not the main characters. So it's not a huge deal, but it would have made more sense if they had tied it in somehow as to why they're so scared of, you know, their, their child living above the surface, especially when his grandma it's, you know, hinted at throughout the movie that she goes into town regularly. Um, and that ends up being the case. So not really reinventing the wheel with this one. Um, it, it very much feels like a kind of spin on little mermaid a little bit, but it's really well done. The animation kind of veers away from the typical realism that we see with Pixar's animation, like soul, um, the way that it depicted New York city was very realistic, but this is more, it veers more into kind of goofy character archetypes and it, it makes the movie more charming because these are, you know, very Italian characters. So it's very entertaining. I liked it a lot. Uh, for my G rating for this one, I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10. Um, thought it was very good. Definitely worth a watch. Not Pixar's best, but honestly, even just a good Pixar movie is still really good. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. 
please make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, write me a five-star review if you're enjoying the show. I'd love to hear from you guys. Hopefully we'll be able to get these more frequently and have a couple of guests on. It's just hard to coordinate schedules with the playoffs and everybody else has playoff schedules going on too. So we'll see. But moving forward, we're going to try to be a little more consistent with the show and uh, get it back up to twice a week, hopefully, as things slow down now. But uh, thank you once again, everyone, for tuning in. This is Gerald Bourget signing off.